May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. That reading from the Acts of the Apostles seems to come at us out of nowhere. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen blurts out the content of this visionary experience of seeing Christ standing at the right hand of God and immediately he's dragged outside of the city and stoned to death by what amounts to a kind of a lynch mob. This brief reading began so abruptly that most of us probably had no time to actually really hear what was going on. So let me back us up just a little bit. In chapter 6, the previous chapter of Acts, We'd read that the apostles were beginning to feel rather overwhelmed by what you might think of as the basic human or social needs of the growing Christian community. We read there that the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so the first seven deacons are appointed to attend to those very basic human matters, Stephen among them. As presented in Acts, the apostles' rationale for appointing these deacons is that, quote, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables, which to my ears has always sounded more than a little bit self-important on the part of the apostles. I mean, it's like, we'll do the significant things. We'll study the word and we'll do the preaching and teaching. Let those deacons do that rather mundane service work. Funny thing, though, as soon as Stephen is appointed to this work, he seems also to have assumed the mantle of preacher and teacher. He's so enlivened by the work of proclamation that he actually becomes a source of irritation in the local synagogue which he attends. And it isn't long before Stephen is taken before the high priest and council to account for the things he's been saying about the risen Jesus. Well, the whole of the chapter 7 of Acts recounts Stephen's speech to that council, in which he traces the ways in which he understands God to have long been at work, work in and through Abraham and Moses and similar characters in the long story a work that Stephen believes has now come to its fullness in Jesus. As presented in Acts, Stephen gets pretty ramped up as he reaches the end of this speech, and he ends up calling the council whom he's trying to win the sympathies of, or or at least maybe should be, he ends up calling them stiff-necked and tells them that they had received the law as ordained by angels and yet had not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. No doubt. That's the point where today's reading picked up, with Stephen then telling that he's had this vision right there. He has seen the heavens opening. He has seen the risen and ascended Jesus standing with God. The assembled crowd explodes into violence in response to this blasphemy. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, Luke tells us. And being the master storyteller that he is, he trains the camera over to the side just ever so briefly 
and has us notice how the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and then the camera's back on Stephen. That brief appearance is Saul's first appearance in the narrative, and I actually find it really rather chilling. The mob is doing what mobs do. They're acting together, committing an unspeakable act, but doing it together so that no one of them is actually culpable. Yet there stands this young man named Saul, minding the coats and watching. The image is one of a man dispassionately complicit, content to stand and watch this act, an act of which he clearly approves. Had we read one verse more, we would have heard that with clarity, and Saul approved of their killing Stephen. Had we read on just a few more verses we would have heard of Saul's program of ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. Saul, you see, was so clear of the rightness of his particular hold on the truth, the rightness of the tradition in which he had been formed and to which he was scrupulously faithful, that he was quite prepared to defend it at the cost of the very lives of any who held an alternate view, any he considered to be wrong or blasphemous, would die. Well, in time, of course, Saul will be knocked flat on his back by the presence of this risen Christ who Stephen had seen. And though he will be struck blind on that Damascus road for the first time in his life, Saul will actually begin to see something of how things really are. That tight grip that he'd held on his former way of believing will be loosed. And over the years of his spiritual pilgrimage, he will find that he again and again has to further loose that grip. And so in his letter to the Galatians, he will write, as Paul now with his new name, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus, as open-handed as you can imagine any proclamation being. In tonight's gospel, in answer to Thomas's question of how in heaven's name the disciples are going to follow Jesus when they don't even know where he's going, They don't have the faintest clue as to what Jesus is talking about when he says he's going to prepare a place for them. Jesus answers by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. Then adding, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in her comments on this passage, Carolyn Lewis suggests that all too often in our hearing... I am the way, the truth, and the life becomes an indication of God's judgment, exclusion, and absence. And no one comes to the Father except through me, a declaration of prohibition rather than a word of promise. And I'm afraid that Carolyn Lewis is all too right in that observation. And that the church has, at different times in its story and in different ways, become so terribly Saul-like 
in its certainty of the exclusivity and correctness of one very particular take on things. And so these texts that are texts of promise and of life and of light become then closed. A month or two back, some of us from here were out for dinner. Steve and Nancy Bell were at the table and somehow we got talking about songs we'd learned in Sunday school. Steve isn't here because I was going to get him to stand up and sing it. (laughs) Song he was taught in his Sunday school which included the following verse. One door and only one and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? It goes on for several variations on that same theme, including one Lord and only one, and yet the ways are two. I'm on the right way. On which way are you? There's a kind of na-na-na-na-na-na tone to the song, that, that sort of exclusive in-out. It's a terrible thing to teach to children. But the theological presumption of suggesting that we can ever take Jesus' rich images of the door and the way and say definitively that we have exclusive claim on them, that we can define where those lines and doors and paths are to the exclusion of others, that's dangerous. Think of all the damage that's been done in the name of exclusive truth claims just within the Christian story. Think of the historic divisions and persecutions, be they between Catholic and Protestant, or between the Reformation state churches and the Anabaptists. It's sometimes said that the one thing that all of the churches could agree on at the Reformation, whether Lutheran or Catholic or Calvinist or Church of England, was that the Anabaptists should be persecuted Think of the ways in which in various church traditions people have been shunned or excommunicated. Think of the dismissive suspicion that has characterized the relationship or lack of relationship between churches, congregations in the same neighborhoods, on the same street, in the same city, not trusting each other for their particular version of things. Without hesitation, I can say that I believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I affirm that he is the way to the Father. Yet with Carolyn Lewis, I hear these declarations as promise, not as judgment or prohibition. I hear them as promise because I think that's how they were spoken to Thomas and to the others in the first place. You want to know the way to the Father, Thomas? I'm the way. Trust that, Thomas, and keep on walking. This is not a club with which to beat people, nor is it a scare threat to get them onto what you presume is the right side of the door. It is instead a way of being in the world now and a path to life forever. Live that way and see if others don't want to be a part of it. Hold up a dividing door and see how many are alienated. Back for just a moment to the story from Acts, where we should notice that Stephen's dying words are words of forgiveness. 
Lord, he says, do not hold this sin against them. Similarly, upon receiving his death sentence at his 1535 trial, a trial more kangaroo court than just process, Sir Thomas Moore spoke the following words, More have I not to say, my lords, but like as the blessed Apostle St. Paul, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, was present and consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept their clothes that stoned him to death, and yet be they now both twain holy saints in heaven and shall continue their friends forever. So I verily trust, and shall therefore right heartily pray, that though your lordships have now in earth been judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. Aren't those remarkable words? And don't you love that it's merrily meet together? He says to the court that's just sentenced him to die. Words like this, whether Stephen's words asking for forgiveness for those who are killing him as he speaks them, or Thomas Moore's facing this august court. Such words could only come from people who had set themselves on a path trod by him who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, and who had embraced that path not as a way of exclusion, not as a way of setting up doors and barriers, but rather as a way of the deepest of promise and the deepest of reconciliation. That is indeed good Easter news on this, the fifth Sunday in Eastertide. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.